nationwide protests in Iran continue with many calling it a revolution. Is Washington doing enough to help the Iranian people? Is regime change an option? Is the Iran nuclear deal finally dead? Our special guest this week, Marjan Kipor, founder and director of the Alliance for Rights of All Minorities, an international network of activists that promotes human rights in Iran. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. Welcome back to J.I.'s Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Hey, Rich. Jared, hey, happy Thanksgiving to you. Hope it was a good turkey. Indeed, indeed. In the, uh, in the Bernstein uh, turkey land. Happy Thanksgiving to the Goldbergs. You know, I just thought about it. We have a lot to cover before our guests, but this is our first time ever in Limited Liability Podcast history where we will have a spouse-spouse couple having both appeared on the Limited Liability Podcast. I'm really pumped. Uh, to have yeah, our guests. That'll be great. Yeah. And and for those who are wondering, why aren't you doing this live from Doha, live from the World Cup, broadcasting the Iran-USA game that I'm sure all of you watched uh, with, uh, with bated breath? Well, unfortunately, uh, we're not members of the IRGC, so we couldn't get quite the best seats in the house uh, for those who have seen some of the news with those Iranian squads rolling around getting... Iranian women, arresting them, detaining them, censoring them. Uh, it's crazy. It's crazy. My views on Qatar, we'll save that for another show. But still, great stuff watching World Cup. Go Team USA. Uh, a wonderful, a wonderful thing. And it looks like a coalition government in Israel uh, inching forward. I think once we see the government form, maybe we'll have additional guests uh, coming up, talking to us about what to expect there, Jared. I think that'll be pretty interesting. We, we, we heard the sky was falling from Barack Ravid. Uh, I'd love to hear where the grass is growing uh, from from someone else as well. Uh, and then I think uh, Georgia, all eyes on Georgia, right? Yeah, I mean, look, it, it's going to be uh, it's going to be an interesting one. I think uh, you know, uh, crazy week in the GOP with uh, Donald Trump having having lunch with you know reputed uh, anti semites and and Kanye. Uh, and you know, Kanye wasn't even the, the worst guy at the dinner and a lot of noise out of, uh, many in, in your party condemning former president's actions. And, and, um, you know, as a guy who loves to find an excuse to take a shot at the Republican party, Kohak a vote to those who have stood up in the Republican party and, and said that it is just not okay for the former president of the United States and future, future presidential candidate. Or current presidential candidate to dine with people who hold such abhorrent views towards Jews and other minorities. A lot of people question why Ron DeSantis has stayed silent so far. I think the strategy is working for him. I think just let the uh, let the Trump train uh, roll by and see if it uh, goes into self destruct mode. Uh, and uh, every day it just seems that Ron DeSantis remains. Uh, a clearer and clearer uh, future candidate for the party, but plenty of other folks out there as well. People we've interviewed like Mike Pompeo and folks we'd love to have on the podcast like Nikki Haley and others. Don't forget uh, Chris Christie. Well. Don't forget Chris Christie. Chris Christie. Chris Christie, our pundit in chief. That's right. Uh, so so obviously we'd, we'd love to have the governor back on. But hey, enough chit chat here. Let's get to our special guest. Marjan Kipor, Greenblatt is the founder and director of the Alliance for Rights of All Minorities, an international network of activists that promotes human rights in Iran. She's a record producer, and we'll let her talk to you more about that. She's a non-resident scholar with MEI's Iran program, fluent in English, Persian, French, and holds a degree in sociology from UCLA, and a master's in education from Harvard. Boy, do I feel dumb right now. And we're, Marjan, we're happy to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's great to have you. Marjan, before we get into the revolt in Iran, help us understand the background of life inside Iran for women, for minorities, and for everyday Iranians. Sure. Um, I can tell you as someone who spent um, all of my childhood and my formative years of adolescence in Iran... Um, and during uh, the Iranian regime, I can tell you that 
um, life in Iran, um, starting the onset of the Islamic Revolution in 1979, almost changed overnight. And um, women and men lost a lot of the freedoms that we um, used to have and used to enjoy. Um, simple things like freedom to listen to the music you want to listen to, freedom to dress the way you want to dress, um, freedom for men to wear their hair the way they like to wear their hair. Um, for men, um, you know, people don't always talk about it, but there was there were also restrictions for um, dress code uh, of men. You know, for example, ties were were eliminated and were banned. It was a sign of Western values and. Um, we were discouraged. Uh, men were discouraged from wearing ties. My father actually had a clothing store in Iran back then, and um, he was not really allowed to sell ties anymore. And if he did, it would be like under the table. But really, the impact of it was mainly for women and minorities, um, because all, all of our freedoms were eliminated. And in many ways, we were also um, regarded as lesser than our male counterparts or as our Shia Muslim counterparts, because according to the new Iranian constitution post-Islamic revolution, we were second-class citizens. And as second-class citizens, we were regarded as half of others. Marjal, let me ask you a question, because I always grew up and understood pre-revolution Iran as a very Western, progressive, you know, place where there was music and there was vibrant art and culture. How did this happen? Like, how did how did this happen overnight? If, if you know, it was a fairly uh, Western, progressive, however you want to call it, but it, it happened overnight. How, like, how did they can capture the will of the people or enough will of the people in order to institute this theocracy that's that's been in place ever since? Many factors were at play at the time. And, um, you know, the, the Shah of Iran um, was really, is really to be credited for a lot of the modernization and progressive and forward um, thinking approaches to create a modern um, country and, um, you know, a country that um, was going to um, look beyond, um, uh, look for, um, modern medicine, for modern education, um, including women in, uh, in the uh, cabinet. Um, and, and, you know, and the Shah was also um, a, a very forward-thinking um, uh, leader in terms of improving Iran's economy. For example, the economy that was, um, in the beginning, more, more oil-dependent, the Shah had a vision to um, move beyond that and um, limit the petroleum export of Iran so that there would be less dependency on that type of um, income, but rather um, have petrochemical products that they would export the products instead of the pe petroleum itself. So he, he um, you know, for 43 years ago um, or before that, this was very, very progressive and, and forward thinking. Um, but the pace of the Shah's movement and vision for the country was not necessarily the pace that the country was able to follow and, um, and process. So for a lot of the more traditional sectors of the community of the country um, and certain intellectual sectors who um, felt like there was not enough freedom of expression under the sh uh, Shah's leadership, um, they wanted to see some changes and they wanted to create some, um, you know, in hindsight, perhaps reforms. But what should have been a reform movement um, during the Shah's um, uh, period in Iran ended up being a revolution. And um, given the fact that uh, the Shah loved the population and did not want to uh, order the army to draw their weapons against their own civilians, um, this was, um, you know, the, the Shah made a decision to leave the country and to um, 
give the people seemingly what they wanted, which was an overthrow or or, or an end to his uh, governance. So um, um, what we see today on the streets is the com- complete opposite of that. That we have today, we have leaders who are directly ordering the um, government, the, the the army, and the police, and the IRGC, and the many many different repressive elements that they have at their disposal to draw their weapons against their own people. To and and um, Khamenei and Raisi and all their posses are standing firmly in their positions, and they are not giving the people what they want. So what happened? I think that at the time in 1979, perhaps Iran was in need of minor reforms, perhaps more freedom uh, of expression and perhaps a little more galvanization of the um, poor and um, the more traditional sectors of the society um, in order to uh, move forward with a a, uh, vision and the direction of the Shah. But rather, what happened was uh, was a revolution. And to be honest with you, most people who voted for the Islamic government did not really know what they were getting. Arjan, you are the founder and director of the Alliance for Rights of All Minorities. Tell us a little bit about that organization. Um, yeah, so I started uh, my activism um, just over eight years ago when in Washington there was a talk about um, a detente and diplomatic relationships with um, the Islamic Republic. Um, there was a level of enthusiasm and uh, um, fascination by Rouhani being elected. And, you know, you may recall the whole charm offensive language that was being thrown around and people were uh, of the belief that now we have a reformist in Iran and therefore everything is going to be workable and therefore we should uh, begin our so-called diplomatic relations with Iran in order to... um, uh, you know, perhaps coming to a nuclear agreement um, at the uh, price of lifting sanctions from the regime. Um, And at the time, because of my proximity to the White House and and my uh, uh, access to several Iran roundtables, I was privy to certain so-called human rights activists who actually sat around the table and they believed that um, lifting of sanctions from uh, repressive elements of the Islamic Republic would actually help human rights in Iran or, you know, even, you know, coming to a nuclear agreement with the Islamic Republic, a nuclear agreement that had nothing to do um, with human rights facts on the ground uh, would improve conditions of human rights in Iran. And um, I was very much against this um, perspective. And uh, I, uh, you know, because I am a woman and because I am um, of the minority community and I um, had access and relationships with um, the Baha'is, the Sunnis, the Zoroastrians and other marginalized populations in the country, um, I saw all of these um, events in a different way. And I um, you know, found it upon myself to um, have an alternative voice, present an alternative voice around the table, a voice that was not all for um, closing our eyes and putting our trust in a diplomatic um, movement toward Iran, but rather holding the regime accountable for their human rights violations, especially when it comes to women and minorities. And that's why I started um, this organization, the Alliance for Rights of All Minorities, with a network of activists um, inside and outside of the country representing Iran's um, uh, religious and ethnic and gender minorities. Marjan, you you have, you know, when people think of the American Jewish or Jewish American, however you want to put it, immigrant story. They think of Fiddler on the Roof, right? They think of of Anatevka 
and and the turn of the century and you know people leaving the shtetl in in ukraine and poland and maybe 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 sometimes they think of a german jewish family that came over in the late 1800s but you have a really rich and in certain parts of the jewish community popular immigrant story um that's not that could you tell us a little bit about that and and how how um your family came to, to live in the United States and, and what that journey was like? Um, sure. Just to give you a historical perspective, the Iranian Jews have um, had presence in uh, Iran since um, um, since 2,700 years ago. Um, and we, we have been part of the society, part of the culture. We predate um, the uh, presence of Muslim uh, and and Christians in Iran, um, and um, much of that, you know, there is a, the the story of uh, Iran and the, the the mighty kings and uh, compassionate kings of uh, Iran have been told in uh, our Jewish traditions, and there is a symbiotic understanding and 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 positive relationship historically. Um, and my family, you know, being Mizrahi Jews. Um, Definitely has traced its roots to um, to the post Babylonian um, um, exile uh, uh, community, and uh, you know there are also Iranian Jews who trace their roots to the Spanish Inquisition. Uh, but uh, you know my family being Mizrahi, we we go back to the you know Babylonian uh, era, and. Um, so you know the way we pray, the way um, that our tunes, our food, our traditions are different. And you're right, we are um, far from the gefilte fish and um, the 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 Google um, experience. And we are, you know, even though we all watched Fiddler on the Roof in the pre-revolution Iranian movie theaters, um, we you know, we, we have cultures and traditions that are very different. Um, and naturally, you know, when we moved to the U.S., and I will tell you about our, our, our process of getting out as well. Uh, when we moved to the U.S., you know, my, my Jewish identity was questioned by very uh, well-meaning Ashkenazi Jews who had not seen uh, Jews like me. And, you know, you and I are on camera like this and we've known each other for a while. I, you know, what is it? I pass as Indian. I pass as, um, you know, uh, you know, Middle Eastern, you know, nondescript Middle Eastern. But I definitely don't pass as a, you know, what you would call a typical looking American Jew. Um, and, you know, I, I, you know, there was a time when I got a little bit uh, upset by um, not being recognized immediately as a Jewish person in America and, you know, having to prove my Jewish uh, bona fides. But um, I understand and, 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 you know, it's an opportunity to recognize the diversity of uh, the Jewish population. But, uh, but getting out of Iran, you know, it was not easy. I, you know, I always uh, tell my children that it was very much like the scene from Argo, where the airport scene, because, um, because um, a lot of us were leaving the country with um, uh, under questionable circumstances, and um, I left without my parents. Uh, I was 14 years old, um, and um, you know we bounced around a little bit, you know, between Europe and the U.S. Um, we considered, we seriously considered living in France um, um, at the time of. Um, you know of, of our of our exit, but because of the anti-Semitism and the xenophobia fueled by the um, National Front movement um, of um, Jean Marine Le Pen, whose daughter is Marine Le Pen, and now gaining even more force in France, we did not find it to be a hospitable condition for you know for us as Iranian Jews. And that's why we decided to move to the U.S., where uh, the Jewish community, the Persian Jewish community, was thriving, and we settled in Los Angeles, you know, aka Tehran Jalas. Exactly. <laughs> so you're a record producer as well, right? So can you tell us a little bit more about that? It's uh, you're pr the producer of an album featuring music of band and underground artists in Iran. That, how, how did that happen? And tell us about those artists. So I'm a music junkie and an amateur musician myself. And, um, you know, it was 
always my uh, bucket list to um, to do something, um, you know, beyond my own living room when it comes to music. But um, um, and I had the opportunity to connect with. Um, musicians who use their music in, as, as a form of protest in, in Iran. And, and uh, through a project um, uh, called Humanity, um, together with a group of other artists, we were able to create a compilation musical album. And um, we featured music that uh, was diverse in genre and, um, you know, at times uh, politically... Um, combative against the Iranian regime um, or or simply just music that is about love and about freedom and about, you know, human beings being ordinary human beings um, far from hate and, um, and differences. Um, but because of the message being message of love or because of the message being uh, expressed with the voice of a woman, all of the songs that we featured in that album uh, are practically illegal and banned from being played in the um, sound waves of Iran. And um, we were able to bring these artists together, rappers, uh, heavy metalists, rockers, um, uh, and others together to create an album. And I'm very proud of what we accomplished. I think a lot of people's picture of like the underground artist community is probably framed by the hit Apple TV show, Tehran. Um, and I'm wondering, is that sort of what it's like? I mean, where, where, where are these people living? How are they operating? How are they getting their music out? What is, what is life like for an artist uh, who's sort of banned or censored living in fear in Iran, but still making their music, making their art? Yes. So as we speak, um, a famous rapper named Tumash Salehi, whose music and whose lyrics are as powerful as weapons and, um, uh, you know, to the audiences, um, he is under arrest by the Iranian regime and he was just handed, um, uh, he was just convicted of Mofsede um, Felars, corruption on, on earth which is a charge that is punishable by death in Iran. Um, and this, the reason for his sentence is simply his music, simply the words that he has uttered. And the fact that he has such popularity um, inside Iran and beyond. Um, Tumaj was, you know, this so-called um, legal proceeding happened without a lawyer um, representing Tumaj. And it is important that we recognize the threat under which the Iranian artists are um, producing music and getting their, their, their messages out on a day-to-day -day basis. And um, the situation with Tumaj is extremely important. And that's, that's why I keep repeating his name, because I want everyone to remember the name of Tumaj Salehi. And in terms of how they produce their music, um, you know, with no budget, um, oftentimes, um, uh, perhaps, you know, um, you know, funding that the artists would, would prepare them, you know, uh, put forth themselves, but oftentimes with no budget at all. Um, and, you know, at times the artists would not even reveal their names because of the fear of arrest and torture and, and even death sentences. Um, they would not at all, um, uh, be recognized for their work and the music would get recorded in basements in um, um, you know in street corners you know a, a moment in time with people watching um, to make sure that there would be no morality police um, in, in sight um, they would they would record a little bit here a little bit there they would just put things together um, they would use creative uh, animation or um, CGI to um, to create um, to make up for what they cannot um, video uh, in, in in open air in um, you know in, in what is a very repressive environment on the streets. So um, those are the circumstances. But um, so it, the Iranian artists have to often choose between fame and their freedom. 
um, because if they become recognized for their work, they risk losing their freedom. And it's a ter terrible cycle, but nonetheless, I'm so proud of each and every one of these artists who's producing music under those terrible circumstances. Marjan, tell us about your work with Stop Femicide Iran. What is femicide? What's been going on in Iran? And what does the group do? So as we were documenting the repression of women and minorities in Iran and monitoring, you know, both with in, uh, Persian language media on a day-to-day -day basis, but also communicating with um, folks on the ground about what is happening in Iran, um, we saw um, report after report of um, women and girls getting killed by um male relatives, male friends, acquaintances in the most gruesome and violent ways. And um, these reports were coming to us, you know, at, at such frequency and um, such gravity of, um, of crime scene that we could not ignore it anymore. And um, we made a decision with a team of Aram that we need to do something more fundamental about what is happening um, with, with respect to um, murders, uh, murders of girls and women in Iran. And at first we thought that these are probably just honor-based or so-called honor-based crimes, um, the crimes of passion, you know, where a man feels that, you know, their daughter or wife or, you know, sister has been engaging in inappropriate behavior with, with a male um, person. And uh, to, so, you know, to, you know, maybe I can't even justify, but, you know, in their minds to preserve the uh, reputation and the honor of the family, they have to shed the blood of this uh, woman who's been um, suspected or for real, at, you know, behaving in inappropriate or unacceptable ways with this uh, male person, um, and um, and you know, eliminate that woman in order to preserve the reputation of the family. So we started to um, track these uh, murders and. Um, uh, identify, you know, how they're happening, where they're happening, what is the excuse for the murder. And we saw that, no, honor is not just, you know, it's not just the honor that is the cause of these crimes, but rather um, men and men are killing women and girls because they can. Because going back to what I said in the beginning of this interview, women and girls as second-class citizens, they their lives are not worth um, as much as a complete human being. And therefore, there is no retribution when a crime has been committed against a woman or a girl. Um, and even when there is a sort of justice being brought um, in, in, in the uh, in the postmath of a, of, a, of a murder of a girl or a woman, the, um, the, you know, it has to be brought by a man, you know, a male who is related to the woman. And oftentimes in these types of crimes, men are not going to tip each other off and they're not going to request um, retribution because oftentimes men are supporting this, um, this act of murder and they're discussing amongst themselves which one of us is going to kill her and, and eliminate her in the, in this particularly in honor-related crimes. But, you know, I have seen um, stories of men, uh, fathers killing their 10-year-old daughters because she was playing the music too loud. New, uh, newlywed um, husband and wife um, deciding that, you know, the husband decides that, you know, this wife of mine is not hygienic enough for me and I can't tolerate being with her. And he just draws the weapon and kills her. Or another, you know, in other circumstances, um, you know, a man walks into the house and um, he is either high or he is angry or he has a lover and he, well, he wants to he wants to just give up his um, former family in order to marry a new woman and comes in to the house, um, you know, in one murder scene, kills his wife and daughters at the same time in order to start a new life. Um so these things are happening and it's not just honor based. And this is why we are using the word femicide because it is a catch-all term for murder of women and girls 
um, for a variety of reasons, just because the the the, the target is a is a is a female. Um, and we are very proud to say that even though we have uh, absolutely no budget from anywhere, we have created the first ever map of femicides taking place in the country. And we are, um, we are following this uh, very, very closely and um, we hope to be able to expand our work in the near future. Marjan, it's so interesting to me. You talk about the culture inside Iran right now with this regime, the toleration, the enablement of femicide, as you described it, the oppression that women have as second-class citizens going on now many, many years. And we've had incidents where high-profile women have been put in prison because of what they've said or who they've defended in court or being murdered in the streets in 2009. Remember the, the photos of NADA at the time. And yet it's the 16th of September in 2022 when a woman, young woman, Masa Amini, is killed in custody that sets off what appears to be a revolt, right? A revolution in the making. Why now? Why this incident in your view has, why is this sort of the camel's back being broken you know, why at this moment is there sort of enough is enough in the population and you're seeing what you're seeing in the streets today? You ask the question perfectly, Richard, and you are right to connect the murder of Massa Amini to um, the cases of femicide that we're talking about because government-sanctioned murder of women um, is... Um, is, is, is itself a form of femicide. And, and it is, um, and, in, and in many ways, women have been repressed because of the government. And um, the truth is that women have been protesting these conditions for, for the past 43 years. And they have been um, trying to um, rebel against these repressions in creative ways um, whether by following Masi Alinejad's um, Stealthy Freedom Movement or White Wednesday's movement, or by, um, you know, as my mother would do, you know, moving um, her hijab behind, you know, her, you know, to, at, all the way to the back of her head. You know, th- we have tried to, or, or wearing jeans um, under our our, uh, our coats to go to school, wearing perfume to school, which is something that was not allowed, um, or being, you know, wearing nail polish against, you know, something that was not often allowed in um, repressive environments in Iran. We have tried to do that. And, um, you know, women have always paid a very high price for it. But what triggered with Massa Amini's death was... Um, was was the moment of vulnerability, was the um, recognition of everyone's vulnerability at once, that this is not just about this girl anymore, about others anymore. This can happen to any of us right now. And it can happen, even, even the men recognize that if it doesn't happen to me, it's ha- it can happen to my sister, it can happen to my daughter, it can happen... Um, to 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 my mother, um, you know the the song um, that has been uh, performed in many of the protests by Shervin. Um, you know, it, it says for my sister, your sister, and all of our sisters, um, that we are rising up for for all of this, um, all of the women, but also really for ourselves. Um, because we have neglected, um, as Iranian people, we have neglected so much of the repression that um, has been imposed on us. And we have just closed our eyes and tried to uh, make it work. But why Why now? Why, why did this movement, you know, why did this um, act of murder suddenly spark everything? Because... At this particular junction in Iran, where the reform movement has failed, where the um, negotiation and the diplomatic movement has failed, when the economy has not improved, when um, you know electing this guy and that guy has not changed 
anything to improve the lives of Iranians over the past 43 years, the people had, had reached a tipping point of hopelessness where they had no other place to go. Um, so for that reason, they um, could not stay silent anymore. Um, they knew that by being obedient and being complicit, there was nothing else that could be achieved. And they had to take matters in their own hands and revolt in order to achieve something, finally. Marjan, we often debate a lot on this show uh, policy prescriptions for dealing with the Iranian regime. I would say if you charted out the topics Rich and I talk about, that would by far and away be the number one topic on this podcast. Um, and I have my thoughts. Rich certainly has his thoughts. What are your thoughts as somebody who uh, runs a nonprofit that, 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 that focuses on issues inside of Iran with minorities, with the oppressed, tracks these issues really, really, uh, really closely, and, you know, can in, in way more than Rich and I empathize with the plight of the Iranian people. What should the Biden administration be doing or not doing uh, to move Iran in a, a, a forward direction, empowering uh, the, the organic protests in, in, in that country? Um, you know, shortly after the protests broke out in early in October, I published a piece in the Middle East Institute, and it was uh, I listed six major policy recommendations. And um, some of those policy recommendations have since materialized. But I think that there are some um, essential um, policy and also symbolic moves that we are yet to see from the Biden administration. I think the first and foremost is um, that we need President Biden, who is perhaps the most compassionate president that we have had in the recent um, you know, decades. Um, at least he has always presented himself as the compassionate in chief of the country. We need him to come in front of the camera and really speak to the Iranian people and let them know that he hears the cries of the Iranian people, the mothers who have lost their children um, to, to this protest, the young women who are being maimed and raped and brutalized and killed um, by, the, by the regime in the past three months, the men who are standing up as allies, but also as their own advocates for their own country and for the right to self-determination. Biden needs to show the world and particularly the Iranian people that he is seeing this great acts of bravery and he is hearing their cries for freedom and that he needs to show his solidarity with the people and condemn in the strongest language possible the atrocities and the crimes that the Iranian regime is committing against its own people. I don't know why, Jared, I don't know, Richard, I don't know why he has not done that yet. It it boggles my mind. There's, He cannot be blamed for this. This is not an intervention. This is just a I hear you message and it needs to happen. Secondly, uh, and I'm glad to see that the talks about uh, JCPOA are eclipsing finally, but there needs to be a, um, a, a clear statement that a regime that is brutalizing its own people that does not need to even have a, anything to do with nuclear weapons. Um, and, you know, I've said this before, a regime that is treating its own population with bullets and bludgeons can never, ever be trusted with nuclear powers and with missiles and with uh, long-range missiles and, you know, drones that they're exporting to, to Russia. So, um, but, um, you know, and in terms of other policy recommendations, um, 
the you know and and I'm very pleased to see that every day different members of the Biden administration are sending out tweets and messages of solidarity but it needs to happen from the podium because the symbolic meaning of 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 that um podium it goes really far and it can also motivate other countries and other international leaders i tell you something that Islamic Republic's lobby has been so strong and so infiltrated in deep um, governments uh, of the West. We know uh, Australia, in, in the EU, in, um, and, and, and the United States, that there has been this reticence and fear of speaking out against the regime, or God forbid, using the two words, regime change in the public conversation. But this is exactly what the people of Iran are asking for. And there's nothing wrong with reflecting and echoing what they're asking for. Regime change. They cannot say it any more clearly. And there should not be, we should not be afraid of saying it. It is just their words. And it's their right for self-determination. Why should we impose this child-murdering regime on the people? Marjan, I, I think that's well said, certainly my views uh, as well for a long time. Um, my question, though, of course, is it, it seems clear to me that the Iranian regime, regime in Tehran, is trying to keep their toe in the water for this potential nuclear deal. And, and the Biden administration as well is keeping their toe in the water just enough for a potential nuclear deal. We saw in the last couple of weeks the announcement of enrichment at 60%, ratcheting up at the underground facility at Fordow. This is you know, accompanied by propaganda domestically of the regime claiming they're getting secret messages from the Biden administration. Whether that's true or just a way to try to undermine the protesters, we, we don't know. But I, I, I do sort of wonder, what, what do you say to people who say to you, but what are we going to do about the nuclear program? What, what what are what else what are option do we have? Uh, wouldn't a war be distracting and and galvanize the population and help the regime? But, you know what what we can't let them get nuclear weapons. What is what is our alternative to to this nuclear deal? That yes, it would undermine the people and bail out this regime. But but what's our alternative if they're driving forward with their nuclear extortion? So this is really more your field and expertise than, than it is mine, Richard. Um, but what, what I would say is what, what are the intentions of the Iranian regime for acquiring these nuclear capabilities? And, you know, they have been very clear about their intentions about, you know, expansionism in the in, in the region about um, you know God forbid the elimination of state of Israel um, they have always been very clear about what what are their you know military aspirations in the region even if they don't directly connect the dots with their nuclear ambitions they have been very very forthright and uh, clear about their their expansionist you know uh, uh, ambitions their proxy wars here and there and um you know and i am ne never the person to say that military intervention is a solution but uh, you know what i would say is that iran has not done anything but military um, activities in the region or military threats and now military action against its own civilians um, it has been the language and the modus operandi of the Iranian regime since the, since its inception. It's always been about war. It's always been, you know, you know whether it, it was war with Iraq, now it is uh, proxy wars here, or you know, waging war against Israel and waging war against its own civilians. It's always been the language of war. You know, and ironically, Richard, you and I were the people who were called warmongers because we did not believe in um, the power of the, you know, JCPOA. Um, and we we always pushed for a third option, which was, again, giving power and 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 the and the and the uh, and, and the credibility to the citizens, not the government. But. Um, it is ironic that we who supported the citizens of Iran were called the warmongers, but the Iranian regime has been waging wars 
all over the place and you know speaking the language of war all the time. So I think I, I would leave this up to the military experts to decide what what is the best um, solution to dealing with uh, with the Iranian regime. But I would say that you know they're not sugarcoating their intentions and their aspirations and activities, and um, you know the U.S. and Israel and all the regional countries. They have a responsibility to protect their own citizens. First and foremost, they have to protect their own citizens and they have to do whatever it takes to, to protect their civilians. Um, and I'm, again, you know, it, I will leave it up to the military experts to make those determinations. All right, so Marjan, we have one more substantive question and then we're gonna go to the lightning round where we ask you a series of lighthearted questions just to get a sense of, of who you are as a person. So what can ordinary Americans do to affect the outcome of, of what's going on in Iran today. Yeah. And just to add on that, there are a lot of uh, Persian Americans who will email me. I'll get these calls from people being like, oh, well, you should talk to Rich. He knows things. And they'll say, what can I do? I'd like to do something. And, right. you know, you're sometimes at a loss, like, well, there's a couple of good organizations you can get involved in. But I am sort of curious, what, what can ordinary Americans do to contribute? So, um, so Richard, yeah, you, you do know things. And Jared, you do know things. People should be uh, talking to you. As not, well. as, not as much as Rich, but, <laughs> but I know a few things. Well, this is a thing I don't know. So tell me, tell me. So I think that um, in terms of what ordinary Americans can do, I think the um, easiest and the most important thing you can do is to keep this conversation going. Because for the first time in 43 years, people are actually, ordinary people are actually talking about this. And because ordinary people um, are paying attention to this movement and to the violent repression of innocent protesters, I think finally the um, American media, English language media, is paying attention to this. Um, you know, I'm seeing uh, NPR, CNN, um, you know, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, etc. They're covering this, and I am so so grateful for all of the reporters who are um, paying attention and covering the stories. Um, for the longest time, it was just individuals like me and other grassroots activists commu uh, communicating with um, Persian-speaking networks around the world and trying to use our social media platforms to get their voices out. But finally, this is getting international attention. And, you know, by the way, for, in order for this, you know, for the movement to be successful, one of the required elements is this level of international attention and, and, and coverage of the international media. So we need for this to continue. Um, and uh, the more people consume this media, the more people share it on social media, the more people talk about it, the more the English language media will be encouraged to continue their coverage of this. And I cannot emphasize this enough. Um, people should join various social media networks, particularly Twitter and Instagram, where Iranian activists are active. Um, um, I have uh, social media handles for all of my uh, activities, you know, my personal marriage on KG, um, Stop Femicide Iran and RM Alliance. Um, we report on all of these developments on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, but, you know, you shouldn't follow everyone who is, um, you know, uh, coming up with these reports. And again, keep the hashtags alive as um, Iran Revolution, Massa Amini, etc. So keeping the hashtags alive, continue the conversation, um, consuming the reports that are being produced, but also um, showing up to protests. When you hear that there is a demonstration um, in support of the Iranian movement, I think it is important to go and participate. You don't need to be Iranian to support the Iranian movement. Um, you, you know, any, all of us have, have something to gain from the freedom of, um, of, of, of Iran. Um, and I have to tell you that the um, protest movement in Iran is going to evolve in its shape and its um, form. And as it enters the third month of, of its season, it's going to look different. Um, and, and part of this movement is now in our hands and we have to carry this for them as, as supporters and allies uh, abroad. 
um, you know, um, so social media, protests in the streets. And then number three is communicating with our lawmakers to support legislation and support um, acts that will support the Iranian um, uh, 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 freedom fighters and, um, and the dissidents and condemn the Iranian government for their atrocities against the people. Um, the um, Iranian government should be held accountable. And I think there are politicians, you know, the members of Congress, um, you know, the, the UN representatives and others who are actually moving forward with this. And we should thank them and support them and encourage them to do more of that. Um, so wherever you are in the country, communicate with your with your politicians and ask them to support the Iranian activists. Um, I could keep going on, um, but but honestly, the grassroots, you know, support is the most important. All right, Marjan, are you ready for the lightning round? God help me, yes. Okay. <laughs> Favorite Persian food? Oh, you know, two things. Gorma sabzi and tachin. Tachin is like the tadig, but it's even thicker and yummier. It's really amazing. Crunchy on the outside, soft on the inside. Okay, you'll need to get us spellings for all of that and and some and and some key information because we'll we'll need to be able to disseminate recipes on that for people who have no idea what that is but definitely want to try it. <laughs> we'll do. We'll do. Favorite Farsi word or phrase? which means may I sacrifice myself for you, which is a term that parents and older people will say to their children it's like i love you but because we are intensely passionate we don't just say i love you we say i love you so much i would die for you all right favorite place you would like to visit in iran god willing when it becomes when it becomes able to do so you're gonna make me cry you're gonna make me cry um the parks the parks. I have such great memories from the parks. And unfortunately, I, I'm, I'm literally choked up. There has been such um, a devastation of the environment in Iran. I hear about the trees dying and, um, and uh, you know, the environment just, just being polluted and miserable. But the parks um, of the 1970s in, in, in Iran, I would like to go back to those moments and just the smell of the trees. Mm. Marjan Kapor Greenbot, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Hope to have you back here soon. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Richard and Jared. I really enjoyed my conversation with you. Thank you, Marjan. If you like the show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you.